0: Hi, welcome back to the Village Trader Podcast. I'm your host in Jabalun Zaband. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Xness. Enjoy tight spreads, speedy, speedy and reliable execution in FX, US stock, stock indices, commodities and metals. And in general, great platform. Register for free to open an account on Xness.com. This podcast is aimed at helping new and experienced traders navigate the market and learn from other traders. This is episode number 57. And this week's episode, I'm chatting with portfolio manager at Integral Asset Management, Keith McCluckin, this is episode number 57. Good good afternoon, Keith.
1: How are you doing? Yeah, I'm well, thanks. It's just great to be here. Hey, thanks for the invite.
0: No, thank thank you very much for 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 taking the time. Really appreciate
1: it, man. No, only a pleasure. So what do you want to talk
0: about? (laughs) To, to to before before we get uh we get started with with your 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 history in, in, into how you got started into the financial markets can you um you know I know that you're a poker player you enjoy po- poker quite a bit we were slightly chatting about it before the show um can you tell me about your experience in poker and its relation to 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 the financial markets? Sure.
1: So, um, poker. Uh, I'm absolutely fascinated about poker. And in fact, indeed fascinated by all games. I'm a a big gamer, both uh, virtual and and physical. So board games and card games as well, hey? Um, But poker is an intoxicating mix uh, between luck and skill. So at first glance, an inexperienced player will look look at poker and assume it's a game of luck. Yet when you play it for long enough, what you will find is that some people consistently win and some people consistently lose. And in, in this sense, you start to realize that um, over time, the, the uh, weighting shifts towards skill. Um, and it's about, and ultimately it's about managing, managing risk. Uh, and that's what luck is. You want to make sure the luck's on your side and you want to avoid bad luck. Now, now, it's actually surprisingly similar to the stock market in not at all in mechanics, but in terms of that combination of luck and skill. Uh, and what I mean by that is, is, and a lot of beginners will look at, uh, a lot of people accuse the stock market and, and the investors in the stock market of gambling. And, it's, and, and, and just because a complex system or a game has an element of luck involved in it or chance. It does not necessarily mean that it is um, gambling if in fact uh, your objective is to minimize your reliance on luck by by using skill. What I mean by that is in the long term, good investors will make money in the stock market. And in other words, they are waiting, they're, uh, they're trying to minimize the influence of luck. Uh, and maximize maximize their own skill, and in the, in the same way, poker is that. Uh, and and it's similar to the stock market. Poker itself has so you've got fifty two cards in the deck, and let's say a average or full table, you have eight to ten players around the Texas Hold'em spread. Um, so there's finite players, there's finite cards, but what you will find is that there's nearly infinite moves. Um, much like the stock market, there are finite stocks, and there are you could buy them, you could sell them, you could short them, you can long them. Um, sounds like if at first glance it feels like there's only so many things you could do in the stock market until you realize that there's nearly infinite combinations thereof, and therefore, at first glance, um, poker, much like the stock market, looks like a finite game of chance, whereas in fact. Your objective as an investor, as as a poker player, is to minimise chance and to utilise the infinite combinations of potential things one can do, so that you get a positive outcome at the end of it all.
0: No, got you, got you. And I suppose the 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 the, the biggest similarities that with with you know in, in poker with any random hand um it's almost all luck but on over a series of hands that's almost all skill um well suppose depending on on the the amount of chips in your pot so
1: so think about it this way and there's two 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 ways of looking at it is that um like in the stock market there's finite number of stocks it doesn't mean that you have to invest in all of them it doesn't yeah in fact I I am not invested in far more stocks than I am invested in. In other words, if this the stock market was a game of poker, I would have folded far more hands than I've played. And in fact, uh, you find that that does translate into poker. A, a good poker player spends the vast majority of their time folding. Um, in other words, for your listeners that don't know what that means, it means that you you get dealt your cards, look at them, and you you don't bet you 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 give up that hand so you fold um a, a good poker player spends a lot of time folding um because you don't just because you go adult cards doesn't mean you have to play them
0: yeah I got, you know i've, I've heard variations of, of of that example that you just made that you know just because there's a trade doesn't mean that you have to take it you have to um almost you know swing when everything aligns up in 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 um, your way. And I suppose that's the biggest advantage that at least retail investors have um, is that they don't have to play all the time. Do you think uh, uh, um, how, why is that? Why, why is is that people, especially retail investors, you know, find themselves wanting to, to play the, the hand all the time and stuff, you know, from time to time folding. And as you mentioned, the the most successful poker players spend a vast majority of their time folding their cards. And in, 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 in um, I suppose a contrast uh, um, in, in the financial markets so and in the stock market is that the, the the best traders or the best investors spend the vast majority of their their time saying no to stocks.
1: So. I'll give you the short answer, then I'm going to give you a slightly longer answer. And the short answer is, and we're talking specifically about retail investors here. Institutional investors, there's different dynamics at work there. For example, you'll have a benchmark and the mandates and the like. So so in other words, there's a gun to your head and you've got to be active. You've got to be in it and you've got to be invested according to that stuff. A retail investor doesn't. A retail investor can sit on 100% cash for as long as they want. Um, I think a lot of people trade out of boredom, um, yeah. fundamentally. And the longer answer of why trading is accounted to boredom is in fact going into the chemicals in your brain. When you enter a trade in the market, you trigger dopamine. Um, it's much the same as when you light a cigarette, uh, you know, have a bite of chocolate, or uh, log onto Facebook and you scroll down your newsfeed. All of these are dopamine-inducing activities, and I think and and yeah, uh, it, it is fundamentally our brains are tricking ourselves into doing something because it feels good. You feel like you're doing something, um, but but in reality, and and. I think it was Warren Buffett. Buffett I, I could stand to be uh, corrected on this, but I think it was Warren Buffett who said that the stock market in the long run is a mechanism that transfers wealth from the impatient to the patient. Um, part of being patient isn't just holding an investment. Part of being patient, patient is sometimes just doing nothing until there's something to be done. Um, and if there's nothing to be done, don't do anything um
0: yeah yeah and i think that space uh, uh between something that has to be done and, you know and not doing anything that's the space that i'm uh, um, killing out of you know traders and and you know retail investors as well I, I actually have a good metaphor for that
1: um and i can spend ages where if you looked on the outside in it would look like I'm doing nothing. You look at my portfolio, nothing's been bought or sold, nothing's changed, nothing's going on. Um, and then suddenly a lot of changes will happen and this and that, and like, uh, I kind of view a good, a good investor or even trader should almost be like a duck swimming on the water. So it looks calm on the top, the top of the duck above the water is moving and it doesn't look like it's doing anything. But below the water, the feet are churning. Like, uh, And that churning is the research. Churn is digging through the markets, being up to date, knowing what companies are doing, knowing what's, what's happening, wh- where are things heading, waiting for those either trading or investing setups to happen. But you have to have done the research before in order to have the conviction to pull the trigger on it. Um, and therefore, it, it can look. For long periods of time, like you're doing nothing, where in fact, you're furiously reading in the background and listening to podcasts and hitting YouTube (laughs) and going on site visits and chatting to management and results presentations and all these things. But it doesn't actually, none of it, it it takes a long time or or it's very sudden for those things to filter through. I, I hope that metaphor makes sense. Yeah, it makes
0: it, it makes a bunch of sense, and uh, I've heard I've heard that metaphor in 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 various different variations, and I, th- I suppose it speaks to its importance in uh, um, not only in the financial markets, but I suppose life as
1: well. Uh, definitely, like, um, yeah, it's pe- people have a, an addiction to activity, <laughs> um, and, and perhaps a way to psychologically manage it because half a half of the market is you managing yourself, actually. Um, And that half of the market is psychological. And if you can change how you position something in your own mind, you can often change the outcome. So if you consider for a moment, that activity is not being defined in you buying and selling things in the market, if you consider activity as in you researching things, then you won't view that as quiet time. You'll view that as very productive time. So that that, that might be a, a, a good psychological trick.
0: No, no, got you, got you. And I can, can you take me back to the beginning as to how you find yourself into uh, into the financial markets?
1: Sure. So I hail from the, um, the mighty metropolis, the Detroit of South Africa being Port Elizabeth. Um and going into varsity, which, by the way, and, and I almost have to tell you two parallel stories. I'll tell you my, my formal uh, academic uh, st- uh, path, and uh, I'll touch on the things I quietly was doing in the background. But my, my former academic path was I studied BCom Rat at UPE, now called Nelson Metropolitan University, with a dual major in all the accounting ones and economics. I went on to do honours, I did my articles at Coopers, and ultimately uh, came up to Joburg, where I worked at Standard Bank, then moved across to Tebe and o um, Offer wealth and I'm currently at an integral asset management. And I'll touch on those uh, as well. But when I first joined Varsity, well, when I first went into varsity um, I was in the, I was in a very lucky uh, position where I came into a little bit of money and I took that money uh, and I uh put about half of it into the stock market. Now, back in those days, and I, I don't want to give away my age, but it was before the credit crisis. Back in those days, you could throw a dart at, uh, at the stock market and double your money on it, basically. <laughs> um, but being the beginner that I was, and I've always believed wholeheartedly in learning by doing. You know, you can read a million textbooks on swimming, but until you get in the water, it's not going to mean anything. Yeah. Um. And you've you've got to you learning by doing. now by all means, read as many books as you want. And as you're doing this, keep consulting them, going back to it. But I I always wanted to invest in the stock market. At this stage, I didn't know it was going to become a profession. At this stage, it was just an interest and a passion. And you know, who knows? how can make money. Um. But uh, yeah, like back back in those days everything was doubling all the time. And um, I mean, I remember looking back one year and going, gosh, you know, I only made 50% in being that year. And and I was very disappointed in myself.
0: (laughs) I was grateful.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know. Little do we know, there's a credit card coming up. Just humble everyone. Um, And, and, uh, but anyhow... While I was doing this, I was also figuring out my approach to the market. And everywhere else in life, I think um, you've got to work on your weaknesses to be a fully rounded individual. The sole exception is in the stock market avoid your weaknesses, avoid things other people are better at than you, and figure out what you are the best at, so that you can extract maximum value. Um, you want to be a big fish in a small pond in the market. This is this is the best way to make profit. Don't go to the competitive parts. And anyway, out of this process, uh, I figured out that I enjoyed researching companies, enjoyed looking at businesses, and um, there's a large Portion of the market that no one looked at. And that was really the small cap market. So, out of this process of digging around and um, making investments in it, I realized that there might be mileage where the rest of the world might take value from this research that I'm doing. And I started a website when I was in Varsity called. Small cap I still actually run that today, and I still have the website. It's a little less active than it was when I had a lot more time, as one does when you're a student. Um, but all I would do was I'd research small caps and post post my thoughts on this on, on this glorified blog. And what was absolutely surprising was one day, and I was still figuring out the internet and blogs were quite new and this and that. One day, I installed an analytics tracking software. And suddenly, realised that there were thousands of people reading my blog. <laughs> that, was, that was quite a quite a shock to me. But but anyhow, while I'm studying and doing uh, honours and then articles at PricewaterhouseCoopers Coopers, and by the way, CA articles was fantastic because I got to look under the hoods and in granular detail across all sorts of businesses from the inside out, from the automotive sector to banking and finance to um, Engineering to agriculture and co-ops. I mean, there's there there are few businesses or few sectors that I didn't didn't look at from the inside out. Um, auditing and sure, your objectives are not an investor, but if you approach that going, I want to understand how this business operates. You learn a lot in that process. So I always uh, always encourage people and CFAs are, are great and by all means, that's a valid uh, valid um, uh, degree or, to have, but if you're serious about investing, a, a CA is, is is really really strong qualification. It gives you an appreciation of building financials. But anyway, while I'm doing all of this in parallel at uh, at Pricewoodhouse Coopers, I was building small caps for COSA such that at the end of my articles, um Standard Bank called me up and said, you know, will you move to Joburg? where the answer is always yes. And Joburg is awesome, by the way. For for those listening not in Joburg, come to Joburg, it's awesome. Um, and then, uh, and and I worked, uh, I w- they effectively made a new role for me at, at Standard Bank. I was in CIB, which is Corporate Investment Bank. And and uh, I was in global markets where I became effectively the, De facto small cap analyst at Standard Bank, which was fantastic exposure, and I got to operate to a, a, like a, with, with a world class team. It was really, really good quality um, experience. That um, I had all the tools to uh, to um, analyze, but what this gave is this gave me exposure to really the back end of the market and how to both monetize and uh, package those tools. And use them in a professional environment. Um, and from that point, um I actually got uh, pulled across to Tebe uh stockbroking. It was called Tebe Securities at the time, were so stockbroking, where I became a small and mid-cap uh side analyst and I serviced institutions I uh for about six, seven, eight years, I, I forget how long. And um during this process, I roadshow regularly. I mean. Think of all the big asset managers in South Africa. I almost saw all of them Um, and on a regular basis. And by the way, you can sit in the bubble as an analyst and publish uh, publish research reports uh, till the cows come home. (laughs) It is a really humbling and very valuable experience to take those research reports and roadshow them to sophisticated and very... So at, at the point where AlphaWealth decided to wind up the fund, I was ahead of benchmark. And what's what's quite nice if you if you have a look at the progress of this uh this uh path is I've not just had the academic background and got to got to road test and stress test my my analyzing of companies and my research, but you actually get to trial as a fund manager, you get to build a track record in real world with with liquidity constraints, with inflows versus outflows, volatility, execution, portfolio management, the whole, all the, the full set of skills. Um, and it was it was a wonderful rounding off of, of the experience, but um, all, all good things must come to an end. And so I've decided to wind up the fund. Uh, I stepped away and uh, I've now joined Integral Asset Management as, as the investment officer. And what's nice is in, in this role within uh, within Integral, it's really, it's less constrained than being a fund manager where you really limited to your mandate. Your mandate creates your investment universe and your benchmarking uh, in, uh, creates really, um, really dictates to some degree how you invest or how you don't invest. Um, here, all, all asset classes, all markets, onshore, offshore, everything is is viable. Um, and we can do some some really good quality capital allocation across the spectrum. Um, because something that's less less apparent was although I ran a f- um, small and mid-cap unit trust at Alpha Wealth. Um progressively in the background, I was running large cap portfolios, involved in offshore, um, building, building house for you across assets, uh, across cross markets and the like. So it's nice to be able to take those the, that skill set and apply it within a small business, but across a a, 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 a unconstrained uh client book as well. And uh, and then next thing I know, I'm, I'm talking to you on a podcast.
0: So that's
1: that's more or less my, my story.
0: Yeah, that was good. That was quite a journey. That was quite a that was quite a fun journey. Uh, um, you know, I could imagine. So you mentioned that uh, in the beginning, we were just throwing mud at the wall, and you know, luckily for you, you find yourself in the bull market, and everybody's a genius in the bull market. Um, yeah. What what is it? What is it that's uh, what is it about the small and mid cap um, sector in the market that attracted to you on a, on a personality basis? Uh, um, you know that you said, you know this might kind of sticks the way that I like it.
1: so I enjoy doing the research, I enjoy digging around and finding finding great companies and talking to management and 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 all of that. Is, is is not a it's not a burden to me it's uh, like it's it's a part of the process that i absolutely love i think most of the market doesn't i think most of the um, market just wants the comfort of the familiar and make me money um so what you tend to get is you tend to get very you get a large number of stocks in the small and mid-cap space but few people looking at them, which leads to some very, very large mispriced opportunities. Um, and in this process, one can make a lot of money. Um, that's, I, I think, the truest of all alphas often found, found in this space. Now, it's not to say you can't make fantastic returns in large, mid and large cap stocks. And in fact, Majority of your portfolio should be in large and mid-cap stocks, but a hand selected one or two small, small cap stocks that are growing fast and undervalued, you know, like a, a a if you have a portfolio and 1% is in a single stock and that stock goes up a thousand percent, it's it's a hundred bagger. It doesn't, if the rest of your portfolio just tracks the market, just that d- generates beta you're gonna have generated a really good, good return across your portfolio. So it's not to say to go out and rush out and put everything into the space, but to ignore the space is also to ignore a huge number of opportunities. And within a holistic portfolio, there is always some space for alpha. Um, and, and circling back to what you said, what, what attracted me to the space is, is via that process of research that I enjoy, one can, and obviously with a little bit of luck, generate this a little bit of luck and risk management generate generate that alpha from here.
0: No, oh, no, gotcha, you. Gotcha. So the 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 the, the mid cap space um, doesn't you know generate as much hype as the uh, um, as, as the large cap, um, the sort of the top forty stocks in the like or the S and P five hundred stocks in the like. Um, how, how how do you deal uh, at least from a psychological and emotional uh, perspective with long periods of being wrong in, in invented commas, um uh, you know with when, whenever you've picked a stock say this one um this this the stock is the the one that i'm going to go with and after founding that um, that stock how much how do you do you know how, how many chips to push um with regards to to the to that stock
1: so and, and this is touching on an interesting question. Um, everyone starts off in the market focusing on the sexy thing. And the sexy thing is returns. I can make money. I can generate returns. To have a lasting career in, this, uh, in, in, the, in financial markets, you start to realize and you appreciate that, in fact, the important thing is managing risk returns often look after themselves if you're looking up, if you're just managing risk. Um, but what I do do and we're talking very singular singular things here so this is not necessarily finance. this is a little bit of psychology. but what I do do in terms of um, both position you see all of these cycles feed into each other. Picking the stock is a balance between risk and return. Um, Putting it in the portfolio and position sizing it correctly is a balance between risk and return. And then it goes down or it goes up. if you've done that process correctly, so you've picked the right stock for the right reasons that you've done the work for and you understand, you have the conviction on it. Because by the way, it's very hard to have conviction on a company if you haven't done the research. So do the research, build that conviction. And the research process doesn't just educate you that this might be a good company or that this, this might be a good company to invest in. It also builds that conviction because now you know it is a good company to invest in then um, make sure you're not overpaying for it. Now, valuations are very important, but I, I would almost use, uh, and it's great to find fantastic companies that are cheap, uh, but cheap is always a relative word. So in, in the in, in, just make sure in worst case scenario, you're not overpaying for a stock. Um, so once again, you're protecting the downside then. Um and then the final thing is if you've position size the correctly within the portfolio, um, and the best way to do this is imagine the stock drops by 30 percent five minutes after you bought it. Would you would you still panic? Would you worry about it? Um and if you wouldn't, not just have you done the research correctly, but you position size the correctly within your portfolio. And then once it's there now follow the story and make sure the reasons you bought it which going back to the fundamental research you've done are remain valid if the stock drops as you know probably about half the time it happens um if the stock drops after you invest in it not just by having a correctly position sized uh, weighting in a portfolio, meaning that you can double up on the stock if it drops far enough and you can average into a weaker price. But the fundamental research you've done often arrive at a number of reasons you bought the stock. And are those reasons still valid? If they are, then, you know, price, price, price is just random walk uh, in the near mm-hmm. term. Um, and I'd use that as an opportunity to to possibly add to it, uh, uh, assuming I've spare cash and works within the portfolio and and tick all those boxes, or you just let it play out the moment those fundamentals change and you're not and they change for the worst, not the best. In other words, the reasons you bought that stock are no longer valid. Mm -hmm. Um, that's that's when you start to worry, that's when you get out. It's not so what I'm saying is. And this is a different way of looking at it, and I'm going going to that what I what I opened with talking about psychology. Is don't define whether you're right or wrong with an investment on whether the share price goes up or down.
0: Yeah.
1: Define whether you're right or wrong with an investment if the reasons you bought the uh, made the investment in the first place remain valid. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, so offshore, I've invested in Levi Strauss. So Levi is is internationalizing their business. They bring so they're growing geography, they're growing uh, distribution channel, and they're growing direct to consumer. While they're growing, uh, while they're diversifying product categories, so from bottoms into ups into sh- shoes. Um, they just bought a yoga company uh, that offers yoga clothing, and uh, and their online. So all of those is, is it, it's effectively going the route that NARC knock is ten years ahead of them. But NARC plays in the in the athleisure space, whereas Levi, Levi's obviously plays more in the casual wear space. So I could look forward. I could what Knock has done, how they've done it, and how successful they have. And those are the key things I'm expecting from Levi's. Levi's just put out their results last night. That's probably why they're fresh demand now. And when you work through those results, all those key things that I'm looking for, they are doing, and it is happening. They are wow. growing online. They're growing geographies. They're growing direct to customers. Their GP is lifting up. Their cash generation is great. Their balance sheet is net and geared, um, so that they can deploy this capital. They have brought in other categories. That all the key things I'm looking for are happening. You know, it's that's the success, not whether the stock is up or down. Does oh, that make sense? I, ho- I hope that makes sense because it's a different way of looking at it.
0: Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. It makes it of, I often uh, um, say something similar with regards to to uh, you know trading. Um, don't define whether the trade was right or wrong based on whether it made a profit or loss. Define it whether it was right or wrong based on what you if what you did was right or wrong. Example,
1: Absolutely. Did you stick to your system and did you follow it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and fundamental investing is a, is exactly the same. You know, did I buy a company for the right reasons? Are those reasons still valid? If I can tick those two boxes, I'm still holding the stock and I, <laughs> I, I consider it a, it a good investment. And at some point, the market will reward me for that. Um, you know, w- w- perhaps through the final lens of uh, uh, did I, did I, uh, prep, not overpay for the stock. Um, so it's a different way of looking at valuation as well. Look, look at it inverted as as a negative. Like if you're buying good companies, just make sure you don't overpay, and the compounding will work in your favor in the long term.
0: No, no, gotcha, gotcha. So, so um, the, the the paradox, uh, and I suppose it it, it, it what it, it is what makes the. Uh, financial markets as difficult as 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 they are and you know as as simple as 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 it is, um, is that you could do the right thing and still lose money and you could do the absolute terrible thing and still uh and make a ton of money. When when it when it comes to 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 the mid-cap stocks and you know how do you protect yourself uh because the 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 axiom suppose supposed they're running axiom in the market is cultural cultural you're your, cut your, load, your load, cut your losses short and that your win is run um how do you protect yourself against an open-ended loss when the reasons you so, bought the company are still valid but the price is is, is contradicted uh, you know is, is going down and you you keep you keep buying on, on the way down how do you protect yourself against an open-ended loss so
1: that's a good question and it all feeds into the process you know and obviously assuming you've done the research, like you say, and the reasons, the reasons you bought the stock are good and and comprehensive, there's nothing you missed um, and they are still valid. So nothing has changed. The only thing that has actually changed has been the share price. What you're really talking about is, is not stock picking. What you're talking about is risk management at a portfolio level. Um, And the simple, an easier solution there is diversification. Hands down. Doc, make sure you have sufficiently different things with the, with the lowest amount of correlation between each other that are all bought for the right reasons. And you know what? You, you, you're going to be wrong in one or two of them. Um, but you're on a balance, you're going to be more right than wrong across the portfolio. Um, and because remember, your objective and it, it's, sound, it's counter to human behavior. Human behavior, you want each of your investments to do well. The reality is running a portfolio, you want the portfolio to do well. That doesn't mean all the positions do well, but it does mean the portfolio does well. So starting point is diversification. Within that, and depending on the risk you're willing to take, make sure your position sizes are, 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 are correct within there. You know. Um, The rule of thumb is start off with the equal weighted portfolio. So if 30, if a sample of 30 things creates normal distribution, according to statistics, a optimally diversified portfolio should have about 30 stocks in it. Now, a little bit higher risk, you could start to weight it down towards 20. um, And at 20, you probably have about a 5% uh, weighting in, in, in every stock little bit more confident in some, a little less confident in others. So you tweak their weighting up, tweak their weighting down. Don't forget, have some cash. You cannot, if an opportunity appears, you, you don't want to have a gun to your head be forced to sell something. Um, so I always try to keep some cash within portfolios, not just to enhance liquidity, um, but in fact, it, it, it's actually buying an option on a future, on the ability to move quickly. If, if, if for example, the market crashes. So we go back to March, 2020, the, the fateful month, and the market <laughs> did an absolute V shape. Like, well, the, the, the second leg of the V came a month or so later, which was just as violent as the first V shape. But if, but if, for example, in, in, in a beta crash, everything is selling off everywhere. If you're not sitting on cash, what you're going to have to do is decide whether the stock you're selling is going to fall faster than the stock you're buying. So you're just switching one into the other. You never want to have to make that uh, that decision. So have cash because that's the only true way you can take uh, really take advantage of our opportunities. So and So circling back to how one manages that is um, at a portfolio level, one, diversification, understand your objective is to make the portfolio generate a return. Some of your calls will be wrong. Much like playing poker and going back to our initial analogy, it does not matter how skillful you are. Sometimes you don't have the best hand at the table. Sometimes you lose. Um, There is an element of luck involved. And our objective is to use skill to minimize that, but it will never be zero. That's what risk is. Um, Risk is the uh, uncertain uh, uncertain outcome. But use diversification to your advantage. Use position sizing to your advantage. uh, And use cash to your advantage. And combination of those, uh, those three things at a portfolio level should be Means you should be able to weather almost anything.
0: No, actually, that was uh, that was quite great. That was quite great. Um, have you always uh, just only looked at, at at fundamental analysis to the exclusion of of technical analysis, or do you currently work with the two? Uh, so,
1: traditionally um, um, only fundamental analysis. Um, I mean, uh, using the poker analogy, I uh, uh, explain technical analysis as imagine you are sitting at a table playing poker and everyone gets dealt cards and you don't look at yours. You try to simulate your bet by, by betting on the pot. So in other words, your bet is dependent on how the other guys are betting, but you haven't looked at your cards. Um, to me, trying to uh trying to invest in now. Remember, I'm tr- I'm investing, not trading. Uh trying to invest in a stock based on its share price is is like trying to play poker, not looking at my cards. Why wouldn't I look at the company? And if I'm looking at the company, let me look at it properly. And if I'm looking at it properly, well, actually I'm investing, I'm not trading. Uh so that that said the nature of the beast is also in fund management and portfolio management you get inflows and outflows and the like and in short term periods one has to make decisions to deploy those efficiently and as smartly as as as, uh, as one can and you can add a lot of value doing it uh, doing that as well as, as we try to do here at integral um now you know what you're buying or you know what you're selling so you've already done the research. But you, one can make use of of short term. Um, so I, I tend to use uh, uh, levels, you know, in extreme short periods to decide whether a stock pulling back at what point do it go into it, and a stock rallying, you know, do it, do I go into it now or is it going to pull back later? Um, but I wouldn't make decisions based on that. That's merely that's merely utilizing the short term in one has to deploy money in the market and this is the difference between retail versus institutional institutional you you've got to deploy money in the market someone gives you money to invest <laughs> it's got to be invested so your objective is to is to use your long-term view to generate returns but you have to there's no way to deploy money in the long term you still have to pick a day or a week or a month to buy a stock uh or or buy into a portfolio and the like and and you know you, you've got to be cognizant of, of, of the price moves and levels that's trading at. You know, is it range bound? Is it breaking out and things like that? Um, so with hopefully without uh dissing technical uh traders <laughs> and, uh, at the same time, not, not not pretending I am and being very fundamentally uh focused, I hope, I hope I've sufficiently <laughs> answered your question.
0: No, it has, it has. It's has been a uh, I suppose a battle between you know fundamental analyst and technical analyst, you know, one not completely agreeing with the other. And I think there's a there's a some there's a middle ground somewhere in between the two.
1: I think they different tools for different things. Yeah. Um, and, and that's one of the beauties of, of the stock market is that it's what well, it's the most complex game in the world. You know, there's infinite moves, infinite Pieces, infinite ways to approach it. I can buy a stock and you can sell a stock and we can both be correct, and it can be the same stock. <laughs> <laughs> We're playing different games. Yeah. Um, and we've got different rules according to those different games. Technical analysis, you know, if you if you're a trader and you're short-term orientated, by all means use technical analysis. Um, but but I'm not. So yeah. I'm, I'm not really going to. I'm, I'm going to focus on fundamentals. That's what I'm buying. I'm buying part ownership in a business. I want to make sure the business is good. So different, different toolkits. Yeah,
0: um, Yeah. I suppose that's the, the most fun part about this game, that you you yourself get to make up these rules.
1: Uh, yes. Um, and, and that's why I think it's also very clear. This is where perhaps a lot of people struggle particularly on the retail side, they'll read a bit of technical analysis and then they'll read a article in MoneyWeb that says this stock is, this business is doing great things. And then they'll read a research report that upgrades something to a bar, downgrades something to a sell. And then I'll kind of make a call out of this mishmash of different indicators. Um, I think before learn by, learn via doing, jump into the market and rather be investing than don't be invested, be involved, have a seat at the table. Um, but you do need to define what, what you are doing. What is your toolkit? How do you approach this? And, and a lot of people don't, don't define that for themselves, you know uh, And I've dealt with uh, clients previously and across the years who, have, for example, sit down and tell you they're long-term investors, and then check share prices every five minutes and want to <laughs> trade in and out of stocks. So so people say one thing and then they do another thing. H- half the market is you managing yourself. And make sure that you've got a clearly defined approach to the market and that you actually execute on it. It's not just pretty Pretty flowchart up on the wall, or a, a nice Warren Buffett yeah, cliche that you've tattooed on your arm, but you actually execute it. Um, the ve- the combination of those two things, I think, uh, makes this process quite rigorous, but it also makes it quite challenging for the uh, non professionals in in the space. Cool, cool, cool.
0: cool. Um, what's what's the the most painful trade or investments that you've ever made, and what was the basis of um of that trade and what was the mis- mistaken opinion or the lesson um with that the trade okay okay I'll, I'll actually give you two
1: um now this stock has been uh, this stock has been delisted from the JSC for ages uh, it's called uh, country foods or it was called country foods now back in the, Al- the altex listing boom what country foods did. Was that they had a, uh, they basically farmed mushrooms, which sounds funny, but mushrooms, making mushrooms is quite a specialized farming technique. You've almost got to have these tubes that run on the ground and you've got to keep them just sufficiently moist and listen. And there's, there's a lot of, Com- complex RP and infrastructure that goes into farming mushrooms and to do it at scale and, and commercially is, is is challenging. There's barriers to entry in that. And at the same time, food is defensive and inelastic. So it was, it ticked a lot of nice boxes. And country foods came out with a great set of results that I, I like Red looked at, and I was like, you know what, this is a great stock that's sitting on a on a very low multiple and I bought into it. Um between that set of results, to six months later, when they published the next set of results, they went bankrupt. That's how fast it <laughs> So the lesson I learned there was when you unpack their balance sheet, it had a bit more debt than it should have. And more subtly, their cash flows were terrible. Now you can't pay debt except with anything except cash. <laughs> you can have all you can have all the EBITDA you want in the world. If it isn't backed up with cash, you can't pay your debt. Bankers don't accept EBITDA when <laughs> they call in, call, in, call in their debt. So and, and then and li- so all problems start with liquidity problems and very quickly progress to solvency problems. And in the course of six months, they went, they went barely up. Um, and I've I've never gotten a cent out of the company. I was a complete write off. Uh, luckily, our position sized correctly into it. So I mean, I I lost I lost a bit of the well, I lost you know a couple percent of the portfolio. But that hurt because that and it also taught me that if you don't research and analyze these risks when they come home to roost, how fast it can happen. <laughs> I mean, that was between two reporting periods. You go from from like record high profits to bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute curveball. So so. That that was that was definitely a painful one, but I learned a lesson there. The second one is an offshore stock. Um, they so there used to be a company listed on the on the LSE called Shaft Sinkers. Uh, however, pornographic the name may be, um, what they actually did was they uh, they sh- they sunk the main shafts for mines, um, and hence hence the name now sharp sinkers was a distressed company and i went into it eyes wide open so notice already the difference uh, a number of years losing money on country foods did when i made this call here you go into you go into it eyes wide open you go this is a distressed company but it was deeply asset rich and the distressed right. portion of it came from the cash flow side so it was profitable and um, it was acid-rich. I mean, it was trading at fractions of book value, and book value was historical. It wasn't even fairly valued. Um, but they were sinking a major shaft um, somewhere in Russia, and the Russian, the Russian uh, client refused to pay, and there was a legal dispute. Now, I'll put legal dispute in inverted commas because we're talking about Russia here. Uh, <laughs> And, and this all hinged on, if they can get payment out of these guys, the cash will flow, they can service the debts, suddenly, they're back in business, and everything is happening. And then this stock would be a 10-bagger, easy overnight. Um, what happened was, they didn't secure payment. Russian guys uh, killed them, they went under, and I lost everything on that investment. But once again, I, was, I went into it eyes wide open, and that was that was the investment. That was the play. It was an event play around Russian payment. What I what I learned out of that one was um, so in in at certain points. And do you know what I mean when I say that certain points in in certain scenarios they are kingmakers, and the Russian company was a kingmaker in that position, not just as Russia a a vicious uh, uh, market to invest it you don't have a huge number of protections in in Russia it really is it's yeah you know, it's it's quite a, quite a brutal brutal part of the world but understand that that company the Russian company that was uh, owing uh, shaft sinkers that money had no incentive to pay them because the longer they dragged it out and shaft sinkers was listed, they just had to drag it out long enough shelf sinkers would go bankrupt and then they could settle with the creditors <laughs> 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 so, so, so they were in kingmaker position and they had the incentive not to pay uh and the moment i look at it that way you go well and of course you're in russia so you're deeply, you deeply know, yeah you know if this was in america or in london or something like that like lawyers would have been involved but here yeah, lawyers were involved, but there's only so much you could do in the Wild West. Of Russia. So, um, yeah, like uh, in hindsight, that was actually badly thought out. I should have, should have seen that scenario playing out that way. Um, and I, I, I learned a number of important questions, but uh, lessons, but probably a key one is if, if you want to know outcomes, you've got to know incentives. So figure out who's incentivized to do what and you, you, you start to understand on a, on a probability-weighted basis how scenarios are probably going to play out.
0: No, no, gotcha. You know, the, the, the lesson that I picked up, especially on, the, on the, uh, that second stop with the Russian story, is concentration mm. risk is not only detrimental to a portfolio, but pretty much to everything and everyone when, when it comes to money. Um, you know, if, if, you know it's, Definitely. It's, as people who are unemployed, we have a, a huge concentration risk if that that income is solely coming from one source. Um, you know, similarly to companies, you know, they they completely susceptible to bankruptcy if a, a huge chunk of the the, the the capital or money that they're waiting for is coming from one source.
1: Definitely, and people don't think about risk um, holistically enough. Uh, I'll give you an example. I mean, a a form of concentration risk is most people listening to this probably have a job. And that job is their sole, sole form of income. That is like having a business with one customer. <laughs> um, that's quite risky. So, uh, and in fact, I'll go even further. So, for example, if anyone listening to this has a job in, for example, um at a resource company, or a job in a hotel, or tourism, or something like that, when you're building your portfolio, perhaps don't invest in companies in that space. What I mean by that is your income is already coming from that space. So you're already exposed to that industry. Perhaps diversify yourself by investing in other industries. So at least if, and uh, you know, obviously in COVID and absolute tragedy what's happened to the like tourists in the industries and hotels and the like and i mean my 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 thoughts go out to everyone in in that industry but they got punished not because they you know chose a bad job it's just bad luck but the problem is imagine imagine you didn't you work at a hotel and you went and built your portfolio buying a whole lot of hotel stocks um, you would have been uh, had a double whammy then. You're por- like you aren't know, just like struggling in terms of your uh, your career, uh, but your portfolio has taken the beating. So um, people don't think about you know let me phrase it this way: the opposite of concentration risk is diversification. Um, yeah. Win in doubt, over diversify. That's that that ensures uh, sustainability. At least you survive to fight another day then.
0: Yeah, I think that's the most important, uh, That's the, modern, the most important thing, surviving to to um to fight another day. Um, and, and any best trades and the basis of 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 those as well and the lessons of, of what you did, right? I've I've had a number of good
1: ones. Um so invested in AdaptRT T when it was about one Rand sold sold most of mine in the teens and sold some of them, some of them in, in the 20s and, and plus. Um, that, that one worked out really well, um, but, but the, the narrative started changing there as well. They, um yeah you know, adapt was supposed to be an RP play with annuity income and the acquisitive side worked well well they well they had the platform and steadily over time they started to dip into more capital intensive things with less annuity more service orientated less RP based the nature of the group changed uh whereas the valuation we rated upwards. so it was there was there was a time and place to get out, out of adapt rt. Um, I, I didn't call all the downside that happened subsequently. That was just fortuitous. I also made a lot of money on EOH for a similar reason. I uh, must have bought it at a couple rand a share and sold it at about 20, 30 rand a share, um, which I sound Genius when I when I say that, but understand that it's after hitting 20, 30 rand a share went up to about 140 rand a share, and I, I thought, <laughs> but uh, that's played out uh, the way we all know how it's played out. Um, another one I, I bought and I did quite well on was Taste Holdings. Now Taste is is now called Lux, and there's all sorts of things that have changed. So like without spending too much time going into corporate history, Taste, taste when I bought it, had the core QSR business and they were, were rolling out uh, really the uh, Domino's side. And the Dominoes was a brownfields conversion, meaning they're taking existing store, scooter stores and converting them into dominoes. Um, So brownfields is always less risk. Than greenfields, where you're going and making something brand new. Less capital involved, less risky, because you've got a trading history, you're already in the area, you could do this cleverly. Um, and so bought, bought into Taste, once again, must have been about a rand or so, and uh, sold out, interestingly enough, that I remember the exact price I sold out of Taste at. And that was uh, on the day they announced their partnership with Starbucks, the share price rallied to five rand a share and a huge number, a huge volume went through the market. So it was was actually also a liquidity event. And I sold every single last share at five rand a share there, which in hindsight was their all-time high. It never traded higher than that. It only went down. Um, So, and the reason I sold it at that point, because I was invested in taste for the Domino's value uplift from the Brownfields conversion, rolling out the dough factory, they were building and everything. The moment they signed Starbucks, it changed, it changed those fundamentals. The reason I bought it was still there, but they'd inserted a huge amount of risk into that equation that lowered the value of that. Uh, what I mean by that is Starbucks was not uh, a brownfields conversion. It was going to be a greenfields rollout, so it's risky. Second of all, South Africa is not actually a coffee country. Um, we, we, we. It's not New York. I don't walk down my street <laughs> in, in Joburg and grab a coffee on the way to work. Like uh, it, it's just the model didn't fit into South Africa, and it was greenfields and rolling this out at the same time. They're rolling out uh, dominoes, just introduced way too much financial risk because the only way they do this is either debt or equity or both. And I didn't want to be around to s- see how that played out. Yet ironically, the share price rallied on this news. So did, it didn't just detract from my fundamental reasons. I actually got I got an opportunity to exit higher and you go like, this may not come again. Let me get out now. <laughs> so that, that was a great trade. Um, well, a great investment at least. Then, like, there's actually a couple that I still hold now. Santova's um, one. Santova, I think I must have originally bought it. Yeah, I don't know. 50 cents a rand or so. Um, I've held Santova for must be going on eight, nine years. And it's trading at about three, four rand now. Um, yeah, the, its fundamentals are still in taxes. Valuation still makes this an asymmetrical payoff for me where there's just... Huge amounts more upside and um, and I can see very little downside. So I carry on holding Santova. I don't view that one as having played out. It's already a couple bagger for me. And hopefully hopefully one day when we talk again, uh, it'll be a multi-bagger for me. Like, yeah, 10, 20, 30, who knows? Um, another one I hold is uh, master drilling. Um, so so I must have must have about doubled my money on master drilling at this point. Um, I still think that one has many legs to play out. And uh, the final one and a more recent addition to my portfolio is Renogen. Renogen sits in the uh, onshore gas industry in South Africa of which the sole the number of participants is a is a glorious sum total of one. They are the only player in that industry, um, not just is, is the gas industry in South Africa. I mean, this is this is a fantastic resource they're sitting on, and uh, there's 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 a gas hungry South Africa just waiting for them to come stream. But they've got an incredibly globally and geopolitically relevant uh, and valuable helium deposit there. Um, that's that. Uh, yeah. So so, I mean. I don't think I've doubled my money yet on, on Renogen, but I'm I'm comfortably in the money. And before the story is over, as they roll out different phases of this project, I anticipate um a large amount of upside. Uh it's just such a pivotal, unique uh asset. And, and that's where it actually works quite na- nicely at a portfolio level. Remember, I go back to what I said to you earlier, where constructing a portfolios is it's not just position sizing, it's about taking a whole lot of uh, individual assets that you like for fundamental reasons, but have as little as possible in common with each other. And that's what diversification is. And Renogen has, you know, completely different drivers to the rest of my portfolio. And then that's that works works really, really well in that sense. So, um, yeah, that's off, offhand, I think those are probably my, my success stories. Oh, uh, and then I invested in Capitech as well. Um, <laughs> Made multiples or multiples of my money in Capitec. Interestingly enough, I was forced to sell out of Capitech because I was invested in it at Alpha Wealth through the uh, through a small and mid cap fund, and at some point, it moves into the top forty, so it moved out of my mandate. And ironically, in that instance, you're penalized for being right, and one one basically has to sell it. Um, so yeah, that's that's a strange technical <laughs>
0: reason. I suppose that's the the handicap uh, institutional investors have. Um, definitely, uh, definitely, definitely. Your mandate, so your
1: mandate, your mandate is everything, because um, you cannot breach that. You've
0: got to <laughs> and what, what do you do when you like, um, for example, like two banks, and there is the, both banks tell you to just buy it in terms of. The story of the the, the 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 particular banks and the, the valuation of the banks, price to book, or whatever the case may be. Uh, I don't know the matrix you use to 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 put valuations and stock. What do you do when they're tightly similar? Do you uh, um, reduce the weighting to both to just five percent and split it to, to two and a half, or do you just pick the better of the two? And how do you pick the so... better? That's
1: actually an excellent question. And the, the answer depends. Now, the starting point is what are you buying and why are you buying it? If you're telling me that you, you want an investment in the banking sector, so you're taking a top-down approach, then, and both banks look similar, tick all the boxes, and there's no major difference, no valuation or growth or, or, or quality or anything like that then what you're actually doing is you're doing a sector play. In which case, yeah, instead of putting 5% into a bank, put 2.5% into both of them. Because you're actually doing a sector play. So you're hoping to catch a re-rating in the banking sector. And in which case, don't then take single stock risk. But... If you've arrived at looking at these two banks on a bottom-up approach, and it's not about being in the banking sector, it's about what these banks are doing, then I'd gun to my head, I'd pick one, and I'd put full <laughs> weight into it, um, because what you're doing then is you're not making a sector allocation, you're you're making a call on a stock but you also don't want duplication in your portfolio. So you don't want to put 5% into each bank and then have 10% of your portfolio in the banking sector. Pick one. And probably if I cannot find a valuation difference or a quality difference or anything else in between that, my deciding factor would be what what I call qualitative, meaning um, the softer things around it starting point go and have a look at management incentives which incentive structure do you prefer and back them
0: oh, yeah. And, uh,
1: yeah so it's it depends how you've arrived at that crossroads how how would allocate
0: um yeah okay right. so in, in the many years that you you've been in the in the market what are the the biggest lessons uh, um, that you you have like, the top five maybe
1: top, maybe top five lessons that you've picked up in the market. Uh, so and we've I've spent a lot of time talking about risk, um, and I cannot emphasize that enough. It's that when making these decisions, don't only focus on the return. Focus on the on the question of what if I'm wrong. If you can still stomach that, and there's more return on the table than risk hidden below it, then 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 you're there, then you're in a good space. Um, understand, appreciate, and manage risk. So, rule number one. Second, second one is I, I like the concept called first principles. Uh, when researching a company, it's it's not a series of numbers. So people must understand what accounting is. Accounting. Doesn't generate business. Business generates accounting. So the numbers are important, but unpack them so far up the value chain that you arrive at what the business is actually selling. What is driving that business? You know, um, like I'm, I'm trying to trying to think. I uh, think of some examples. So, for example, in the property sector, you're not buying a set of yields in the property sector. What you're actually buying is buying a portion, a sliver of a larger portfolio of properties that have a combination of funding mechanisms and tenants tenants using them and people moving through them um, that generate distributable earnings that become uh, yield. So you're not buying yield, you're not buying book. You're actually buying properties. What's driving those properties? And if it's a retail, uh, if it's a retail retail, then it's shopping centers. What's driving those shopping centers? All the way down to the micro decision of the individual customer who decides to go to this shopping center and not that one. They want to go to a convenience center, not Santon City uh, and things like that. First principles, if you don't understand what you're investing in, don't invest in it um then so that's second second uh lesson and the third lesson is quite self-explanatory it's patience you know be be that duck uh paddling across the water where you calm on the top and you don't need to be doing things in the market to be adding value to your life um Research, pet, like read as much as you can, understand as much as you can about as many companies as you can in as many places in the world as possible, um, and and you're paddling deep below the surface, and then allocate accordingly. I mean, if if knowledge is uh, knowledge is power in the stock market, knowledge doesn't guarantee a good outcome, but it. Really, really, really does help help you make better decisions. Um, be, luck is partially involved, but how can you make a decision without uh, uh, knowledge? Those first principles, appreciation of, of of risk, but having that patience to let it play out uh, is so important. You know, yeah. I, I'm talking about it in a very roundabout way, but uh, perhaps a better way of phrasing it is is compounding doesn't is not an event it's a process if you interrupt it you will lose out Um, once if you've done everything right and everything remains in your favor then do nothing and let it carry on playing out be patient and allow compounding to happen probably say those those are my three most important uh, uh, questions oh and don't invest in mushrooms and businesses in <laughs> russia <laughs> oh, oh, oh. So the debtors debtor well businesses with large concentrated debt, debts, <laughs> from russia
0: <laughs> yeah that's a good one that's a good one <laughs> stay away from russia for a moment <laughs>
1: Funny enough, I'm seeing the same things playing out in China at this point. Eh? Um, you know, these these wild west regulatory regimes are far riskier than people realize. Because yeah. us as as distant offshore investors, what right of recourse do you have if China just decides overnight that no, you don't own this asset? They're expropriating it. Government owns it now. <laughs> um, You've got no right. Like that that money is gone. It is 100% gone in the blink of an eye. But I go back to appreciate and manage risk. Nothing wrong with allocating and investing in these places, but positions are correct.
0: <laughs> yeah, I suppose Nigeria is, is kind of our Russia. <coughs>
1: yeah, like so, so, so they're not. Uh, they're not nationalizing anything. They just find reasons to, uh, to penalize <laughs> and penalize, hit them with huge penalties. That uh, that is a form of nationalization if one one thinks about it that way. You know, yeah. You can nationalize the ownership, or you can nationalize the economics. Huge aggressive penalties, charges, and taxes, levies, and those sorts of things are nationalizing the economics effectively.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know. MTN had quite a quite a quite a difficult time then in Nigeria.
1: i think that's an understatement
0: <laughs> <laughs> that 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 was a tough time that was a that was a tough time um can, can you give us some of the rules and habits that you live by um, you know in order to enhance yourself as a as a, as a person as, a, as an investor and as just a person generally enough um that ensures that you know you you get closer and closer to your goals and achieving those goals you know whatever those goals are
1: Sure, so, and I will start off with if people miss what the point of this game is, the point of investing right at the center is not actually returns, it's not risk, it's not any of this. What you're trying to do is you're trying to, um, you're trying to better your life, you're trying to arrive at financial freedom. Um... ensure ensure that you have capital and you can look after yourself and your family and your dependents. Um, So the first and most important thing is establish, maintain, and invest in and make an absolute priority in your life to those key relationships in your life. Life is only as rich as the people in it. It's not a bank account. It's not a portfolio. Don't do this stuff to the exclusion of partners and family and friends. Um, we do this stuff to add to that, not to supplement, it, not not to uh, yeah uh, replace that. So you want to have a good life, have good, healthy relationships in it. That simple. The stepping beyond that, though, Um, I'm a firm believer and I'm a proud uni-tasker. I I don't believe in multitasking. I believe in, believe in, I would rather have a list and work through it line by line and focus on each thing than to do five things half-heartedly, haphazardly together. Um, researching the market tends to go the same way. Uh, it's hard. you, You can't research five stocks at the time. Pick one. Uh, and research that. I mean, I must say, as as a professional in the market, my first allocation is not a monetary allocation. My first allocation is time. I can only look at and read and research so many things. So have a very quick way of filtering what not to look at. Don't look at it then and find what to focus on. So your first allocation is time, um, I'm absolutely a unitasker, not <laughs> a multitasker, and uh, it allows me to focus. And that allows immersion. And without immersion, you're not going to make those neuropaths in your brain arrive at magical, magical conclusions that in hindsight are hopefully genius and you're correct. So I, I think that's very, very important. And then a final one, and it's, it sounds <sighs> much, Depending on who you are, it sounds strange or sounds like a cliche, but learn how to write. Um, a lot of people are bad at writing, and writing does a, a number of things. First of all, how, how many emails do you think you're going to write in your life? <coughs> Hundreds of thousands, if not millions upon millions. Um, the written language is absolutely still relevant in almost every career on planet Earth. Therefore, um, being a better writer makes you look better. It's that simple. One-to-one correlation. Um, Second thing is, especially in investing, after you've done all the research and everything, sit down and write why you're investing in the company. And if you cannot succinctly write, uh, while you're investing in the company, you haven't done the research, or, or it's not worth investing in, or it's to come, but the writing crystallizes those thoughts in a way, in a different external way to to just thinking of something. Um, writing is a very valuable skill, but it can also be used for self-reflection, that is immensely valuable at, at, all walks of life not even just investing you know that that perhaps perhaps the people in the old days had something going when they when they sat down and wrote wrote diaries (laughs) um well if you don't self-reflect how are you ever going to improve your life i mean you're just going through it oblivious to what you are um and the best way of self-reflecting is writing so I, i i think and, and apologies, apologies if those were a bit waffly, but um, I, th- I think those are all very important, uh, important principles that I try to use.
0: Um, definitely. No, I like I like those products, especially around writing, and uh, I suppose bias there a little bit because I'm a writer myself and unit And I, I used to multitask task a lot, and I I used to confuse activity with progress, and I couldn't see progress. You know, when reflecting, I could see that there was. Because it was multitasking so much, and since I started to try and do one thing at a time, it things get better. You know, with, with, with when it comes to progress.
1: Definitely, definitely. Like laugh, laugh has a quantity element, but it definitely has a definitely has a quality element. And like so, so another way I I, I look at it is that you know if I'm doing five tasks, it doesn't take me. 20% of the time to do each one of them. But in fact, there's, there's frictional costs of switching between the tasks that get multiplied. Um. And therefore, it takes me 30 or 40%. Uh, so instead of five tasks, taking 20%, or 100% of my time, and and in the allotted time, I've done five tasks, it actually takes you longer to do them. Um, then if you broke them up individually, and you just did one task, then you move to the next one, then you move to the next one because you're minimizing that frictional cost of moving between tasks um, and having to figure out where you are on this task again and stuff. Now, I mean, the, the nature of work these days is you can't always unit task. Um, yeah, emails come in, clients call you, things pop up, there's results presentations exploding, and back meeting. yeah. But whenever possible, if you can break something down and, and break and uh, separate tasks, do that. The power of focus will probably actually mean you go through those tasks in a linear fashion. Sure, not not in parallel, but in a linear fashion, you'll probably go through them better and faster than multitasking. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And I think doing them slow, reasonably slowly, as well, is is, is, is gets quite important because you less you make less mistakes. Because there's a, I suppose, an innate uh, need in human beings to do things faster and doing them slower makes you do them faster,
1: or slow and steady the there is. Definitely. Um, and g- talking about EOH, EOH had a motto. I'm not not sure if they still do because there's obviously new management there, but they had a motto to, um I'm trying to remember what it was, but um, do it right first time. Basically. Yeah. So yeah. Try being thorough means you hopefully only do the task once. Um, yeah, I absolutely agree with what you're saying there. No,
0: no, got you, got you. It's it's it has been a great conversation, man. I, I really enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did.
1: Absolutely, it's like it's been good fun uh, uh, talking. I appreciate all, all the airtime.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I hope to get you back again, man.
1: Yeah, um, hopefully when we when when I'm back in, we can talk about the uh, the thousand bagger that was sent over master drilling and (laughs) energy.
0: Yeah, hopefully maybe I'll uh, join join you guys in poker as well and and learn a thing or two.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) Just uh, yeah, just be 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 cautious of of uh, some of the players, and I'll I'll give you the heads (laughs) up offline. It's it's a it's a good life lesson losing a bit of money in poker once in a while. Yeah, yeah.
0: But before I let you go, man, what are some of your your, your favorite books that you that you've read, and
1: what what were the lessons that you picked from those books? Sure. So, um, in terms of investing, books, I like One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. Mm -hmm. Uh, He has a deeply practical way to investing in the stock market, because a lot of us are innately rich with data about the market that we don't even realize is there. Um what where what shops are you going to, what products are you using? What websites do you frequent? What do you eat? What do you drink? What is what is work? These are all, we're all economic participants. We all get to see like uh, how the economy is playing out, we all innately know huge trends that are happening, and he took it a step further to to follow those trends into the market and find the the beneficiaries and in the, in the companies that do this. I also like the fact that if he preferred small companies, small caps over large caps for the valuation gap that we've touched on and the alpha you can generate there. Um, wonderfully practical book. It's not just thousands of formulas. It's a very very practical way that anyone literally on the street can can use to to invest in so so that's that's a key one and then uh beyond that there's and i'll touch on a little eastern philosophy so there's um, everyone knows sun tzu's uh art of war mm-hmm. uh a lot of people are going to hate me but i think that's seriously overrated i think the greatest eastern philosophy book and by the way sun tzu has a great book if you if you are uh, managing billions in the stock market or uh, running an empire or 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 like uh, leading an army very practical book then for most for most other things it's 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 not so practical uh, it just sounds fancy uh What I think is the greatest Eastern philosophy book was written by Miyamoto Musashi, who was an undefeated Japanese duelist. Um, And after his final duel, he sat down, he retreated to a monastery and wrote this book over the course of one evening. It's called The Book of Five Rings, Um, and and each of the rings uh, attaches to a different element uh, and he actually unpacks that element in terms of a personality and how one should approach life. Notice how Sun Tzu's Art of War is talking about empires and managing hundreds of thousands of people. Most people, that's not relevant. Miyamoto Musashi, he's talking about an individual. He's talking about you. This is how you can run your life. Way more practical. Um, really, really. Good and contemplative book, um, and then besides besides the rest of all of that, um, I must say I like uh, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> 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 and and uh, above everything else, what Lord of the Rings teaches us is that uh, Frodo only got to the Mount Mount Doom um, because of Sam. So pick the people in your life. Very carefully, because you're walking the journey
0: with them. <laughs> that's that's a great segue to to close off the show. Picking picking the, the best people to to be around you, and I think, yeah, you know, I was reading uh, the rules for life by by, by Jordan Peterson, I and mean, it mentions exactly that. You know, pe- have people that wants the best for you. Um, be the cl- be close to the people that want the, the best out of you and the best for you
1: absolutely we become our environments um, and the people around us are our environments so you know it's yeah it's so important who you have and who you keep in your life and nurture those relationships
0: yeah, no, got you, got you. Keith, um, thank you very much for, for, for taking for, for taking the time. We're gonna park it here. Um, that's it for the show this week. Thank you for chilling with us. Be sure not to miss another episode of the British Podcast by subscribing and a favorite podcast of basically everywhere where good, good. good podcasts are aggregated. Um, do join someone, Brian and myself, every Wednesday, five thirty evening on Zoom. I'll leave the link to that in the show notes below. Um it's uh don't forget to, to open an account with excellence.com, the sponsor of the show. Um, Keith, thank you very much for taking the time and thank you for listening and check you next time on the show. Cheers.